I would ask you to turn in your Bibles once again to the 19th Psalm, Psalm 19. We came into the new year, we've already been a month, one month gone, one month in the books, and um, I thought that in the month of January we would have plenty of time to make our way through the contents of Psalm 19, and then we got snow, then we got sickness, then we had people that came one week, didn't come another week, as because because of these matters, and I just felt the need to do review, and perhaps uh, just got the waylaid in terms of uh, a plan, uh, a preaching week by week. But that's not of that important to stick to a plan. It's more important to expound the word clearly and in a way that would bring profit uh, to our lives as the people of God as we come into this new year, and uh, want to see how central the holy scriptures are. To all of our concerns as God's people, one of the things we've tried to emphasize is that this is a psalm that's center, central to a whole cluster of psalms. Psalms that begin at Psalm, 20, uh, psalm 15, go up to Psalm 24, and psalms that cover such issues as our approach to God in worship. Psalms that consider matters of finding our completeness and fullness and adequacy and satisfaction in the living and the true God Things that have to do with how we can be vindicated in the midst of a world that would make all kinds of charges against us. How God acquits his people. How God is the God who pronounces our justification and our integrity and our acceptance in his sight. And then how in the midst of a world at war with God and his people that we can find that we're on the victorious side. That we can find triumph and victory and attain to every good thing through the grace that the Lord himself supplies. And having seen that these are the issues that really surround the words of this psalm, seems to me it's central to the whole matter to see scripture as a component part of all of those things. Of course, also the revelation that God gives to him of himself in creation, that too is something that Christians need to study. That too is something that we need to be considering. God does speak to us from the heavens, declaring his being, declaring his glory, declaring the splendor of his attributes, his wisdom, his power, his beauty. We behold creation and consider it. It's not just something that God tells the world that doesn't have the Bible so that they get convicted or they see that they can't come to God just through general revelation. This is for the saints. This is a song that's sung by the covenant people. Covenant people are stargazers in a sense. We're people that see the glory of God in the heavens. And we are people that also mark the reality of all space that is part of his creation. The whole expanse of the heavens as well as time. The very passage of the sun from the east to the west marks out all time, all space as sacred. That's what creation teaches us. There's no such thing as any reality that's detached from or apart from the God we're called upon to worship and serve in time and in space. Then the psalm moves to the whole matter of the revelation we have in the word. From the world to the word. From the heavens to the revelation God gives of himself in the Bible, in the Holy Scriptures. And then we saw that there are th traits that the, that the 
Scriptures possess perfection, certainty, rightness, purity, cleanliness, truth, and righteousness. This indeed is an excellent revelation that's not lacking in anything. As we saw in what we read in 2 Timothy, that we should be complete, thoroughly furnished to every good work. In other words, none of us can say, Lord, if only you told us a little bit more, if only you gave us a little more insight as to what life is all about and how we can answer the questions of life. And God says, well, what would you do with what I told you? <laughs> what would you do with the revelation that I've given? Well, if we take seriously the revelation that God has given, we would never say that there's not enough. We would say there's more than enough to consider, more than enough to spend a lifetime in studying and finding every time we expose ourselves to the truth of Scripture, there's more wonder to be seen. There's more reality to understand. There's more of God to see and Christ to, un- to know about and God's ways and will to be more fully apprehended as we come into deeper and deeper understanding of the teaching of Holy Scripture. It's good to be impressed with the doctrine of the Word of God that we find in, in the Scriptures. It's good and right to affirm the excellence of the Bible, to rehearse its traits as we've done, to impress with what it does as it restores the soul and makes wise the simple and rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes and endures forever. To understand its traits and its triumphs by the grace of God is a good thing. But you know, we could easily be accustomed to these things, these realities, and become very complacent about them, to take them for granted, to fail to live in the wonder of what God's Word is, and what God's Word is designed to do. And it seems to me that the psalm writer appears, in some ways, to be aware that this is a danger. And so he doesn't just give us this great statement about what God's words are, and what God's words do, but he tells us that this Torah, this testimony, these precepts, these commandments, this fear, these rules are to be valued. Are to be valued. These are writings of continually immense worth, of a huge and immense value to the people of the living God. And he describes this value, this worth, in the words of verses 10 and 11, where he says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I should have had Tony here to consult about honey and honeycombs. As, you know, he's a beekeeper, so... Um, I just had to just deal with the Hebrew words, but um, I hope, Tony, you don't think I've run amiss of, of understanding them. But he goes on to say, Moreover, by them, that is, by these words, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Back in the day when I was in sales, I'm thankful I'm not doing that any longer, but when I did, 
I remember that there was oftentimes sales meetings in which the things that were often emphasized was the importance of selling to need and greed. You want to set forth the product both in terms of, hey, you need this, and even if you don't need it, you're going to really want it because this is what it does for you. So you sell to need and you sell to greed. Well, there's a sense in which God's word gives us something of a parallel to that in that there's a, a carrot and a stick. There are things that we derive from the word of God and its value that we need to have because of both. Uh, you might say things that uh, are negative and things that are positive. Now the statement is mostly positive. He speaks of the preciousness of the word of God. More to be desired than gold. The much fine gold. A precious metal. Precious commodities. We saw that in the book of Job as well. All the precious stones and all the precious metals that are upon the earth cannot be compared to this wisdom. In fact, he can't offer us this wisdom. Only God's word can. Then there's the matter of sweetness. Honey. Drippings of the honeycomb. And then finally, there's usefulness. By them, your servants are warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So let's look at this, these things one at a time. First of all, the preciousness of the word of God. The word of God is said to be compared to metal, gold, precious metal. The word of God, like metal, is a precious commodity. It's, it's greater than any precious metal upon the earth. More to be desired than gold. Yea, much fine gold. In 1848, there was a man by the name of James W. Marshall. You know who he was, anybody? He's the guy that found gold at Sutter's Mill in, Col in Coloma, in California. It sparked in 1849, the movement of people that are called 49ers. It's not just the football. Oh, actually, the football team got its name from the fact that in 1849, more than 300,000 people left their homes to travel over land, to travel over sea, to travel from the islands of the Pacific, to travel from South America, to travel from Europe, and to travel from every settled part of the existing landmass of the United States and Canada to risk everything, to face substantial hardships by sea and by land, to come to California in the pursuit of gold. The California Gold Rush, it was called. Now, this was a quest that did lead to great wealth for a few. But you see, they're called the 49ers, not the 50ers and the 51sters. Because you see, it's the first people that got there that got the gold. Because there was a limited quantity of it. It was deep. It increased the wealth of the nation. It increased uh, the wealth of the super wealthy and uh, the people that first got there. But as the gold became depleted, many went out there for very little reward. They ventured much for very little. God's word is said by the psalmist to be more to be valued, more to be sought, more to be risking hardship if needful, to have God's word, to search God's word, to store up God's word in our hearts, 
For there are riches in Scripture of greater worth, of greater value than any created thing. The God whose glory is declared in the heavens is the God who reveals himself in his word. He's the God who owns the wealth of the world and he can tell us there's nothing you're going to find in in all of creation that can bring you greater riches than the riches found in his word. Paul describes the gospel as the unsearchable riches of Christ. You can search all your life and find there's so much more to search. Riches untraceable. That's what the word means. It's untraceable. It's past tracing out. Inexhaustible riches. Blessed be God, it's riches available not just for a few. It's not just the first to get there. You can get there late and get every bit as much of the riches than the person who got there the earliest. There's no limit to the riches. No limit to the value that should be placed upon this book, this revelation of God, this Bible, this word of the living God. Because there's no limit to the value of the one who is its author. The preciousness of the word that's of such value that provides realities of the greatest importance and the greatest things that can be found nowhere else. In that sense, they're precious. They're, they're, they're rare. Again, you're not going to get it you know, thrown a line fishing today and say, well, I have the, I'm in the church of the, of the great outdoors. It's great to be in the church of the great outdoors any Tuesday, Wednesday, or Friday if you'd like. But Sunday, you ought to be in the church. You ought to be together with God's people to feed upon His Word. Here in the Bible, we have sure knowledge, reliable truth, trustworthy counsel, undeviated guidance, consistent source of wisdom. It's a precious resources for human beings who are struggling to live in a world of sin know how to live how we can know God how we can answer life's most basic questions what is all the riches of the world Jesus says if you have the whole world and lose your own soul what will you give in exchange for your soul multitudes of people simply cast away their lives in the pursuit of fool's gold Worthless and deceptive pursuits that promise value but fail to deliver. But God's word always delivers upon the promise to those who receive it, to those who are his servants, to those who find their delight in his works. And so this is a precious book, precious truths. And we need to store them up in our hearts in the recognition of that preciousness. But then there's another aspect of the value that's denoted in the terms of sweetness. Honey in the ancient world was also a rare commodity, a precious commodity. Uh, Today we have a shortage of bees going on in the world, in the ancient world. I don't think it was even as plentiful as in the days that we live in. It was a luxury item, although God said about his land a promise that it flowed with milk and with honey. 
But honey was valued for many things. Some cultures would use honey in religious offerings to their gods. Some found medicinal agents in honey that they used to help to heal. They were even used, and it makes sense, to embalm the dead. Keep away some of the stench of death. And now, the psalm writer speaks of honey as in terms of its sweetness. Sweeter than honey. In the midst of a world in which so much bitterness exists, with so much, it just sours the taste of a world that's at war with itself, with others, where conflict and hatred and bitterness and every evil thing exists, to find something that gives the heart and the, and, and, and the life sweetness is indeed a good thing. It is a good thing. There's two words in the second part of the statement, sweeter than honey, and then it says in the ESV, sweeter than the honeycomb, or the drippings of the honeycomb. That's a hard statement to translate, because what the writer does is he takes two words, which are just synonyms for honey. There are three different words, sweeter than the honey, that's one Hebrew word, and then it says, and the honey, honey. Two different words that are synonyms for honey. I should have looked up for synonyms for honey to kind of illustrate what that would be like. But I didn't do that. But uh, it's three words that mean honey. Sweeter than the honey and the honey honey. And that gets translated in the ESV as the drippings of the honeycomb. That's how they tried to explain what that double honey means. Similar words. The ESV has just the honeycomb. But you see, when two words like this, two adjectives, two descriptive words are put together like sweet, sweet or honey, honey, what it does is it creates a hyper-intensification of the thing. And so the translation should be something similar to the sweetest of all imaginable honeys. I mean, that's really loose, but it's what, it's, what he's getting at. Sweet, the Bible is sweeter than honey, and sweeter not just than honey, but all imaginable honey. Again, something of the intensification of gold is there. More to be desired they than gold, yea, much fine gold. Not just regular gold, but gold that's free of all of its impurities. The word of God is superior in value to that. And so the word of God is sweeter to the heart and soul of the people of God, of all imaginable honeys, whatever you can fill your mouth with, that just will fill your, fulfill your desire for, for sugar, to fill your desire for something sweet. That's how the word of God should be experienced by God's people, something like that. And you see that this occurs in God's word. When Jeremiah says, your words were found and I did eat them, and your words became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll, which at first was bitter, but then it became sweet. There are bitter things in God's word, but you chew on it a while, and it just becomes utterly delicious. It's the sweetest of all imaginable things. It becomes a delight to the soul.
makes this Bible, God's word, so precious? What makes it so sweet? Now, one of the things we said last week when we looked at the traits of Scripture that were presented with in the previous verses, all of those attributes of Scripture are also said to be attributes of God. Scripture reflects God. Scripture reflects God's glory, God's perfections, God's excellence. But even more it can be said. In earlier studies, I told you that Psalm 19 is central to the whole constellation of psalms around it that begin in Psalm 15 and go through to Psalm 24. And those psalms have a relationship to this psalm. But something else I noticed in just reading through the scriptures earlier in the week is that every one of these psalms in Psalm 15 to Psalm 24 in some way make mention of or allude to the presence of God. Every one of them either mentions God's presence at your, in your presence is fullness of joy. God's presence is perfect in Psalm 17. It's really the presence of God cluster. See the preciousness and the sweetness that believers experience through the word of God is precisely because of the sweetness and preciousness of God. His own presence. Now I don't know anybody that particularly likes to wake up in the morning and get done the duty of reading the Bible. Some mornings that happens to me. But for me it's a discipline. For me to sit down and read my Bible is because I need to be doing it. And if I don't do it I'll feel odd. I don't particularly like to brush my teeth either, but if I don't brush my teeth somewhere in the early morning, I say, I miss to do something I should have done. And that's how I feel about the Bible reading. It's something I need to do. But how often is it when we actually sit down to read our Bible, we get transported. We get transported out of this world into the world of God and, and, and the realities that surround his throne. See, part of what it means to be in the presence of God is just that reality, to be where he is. Jesus ascended it to the right hand of the majesty on high. I know that's physical uh, relationships of up and down. Some realm, some place where God is, Jesus is. It's the place we go to be when we die and to be present in the, with the Lord, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the, with, uh, with the Lord. But you see, the presence of God is not just something future. It's something that is a present reality. We are called upon to live in the presence of God, to draw near to a throne of grace, to find grace and mercy to help us in time of need. And we're actually told that it's Jesus who went before us into the presence of God that we too might go be in the presence of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. But through him we enter into the presence of God. But there's another way this thing gets done. It's not only that we go into the presence of God where he is, but it's through his word he comes into our lives to be present in us by the Holy Spirit that he gives to us. See, the Holy Spirit is the special presence of God. 
in us. Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will pray the Father. He will send the Holy Spirit to be with you, to be in you. The Spirit of God comes and dwells in our hearts by faith. In Hebrews chapter 4, when it tells us that Christ has gone into the heavens and we have access to the throne of grace, it also tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrows, quick to do what? To discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So it's not just that we get transported out of ourselves into the presence of God in elation and joy and thanksgiving for all that Jesus has done for us, but God draws near to us by His Spirit, through His Word, in our hearts, probing the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And I believe we experience the presence of God in both ways. And God drawing near to us and us drawing near to Him. That's why James could say, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. We are to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the word of God is the agent through which we draw near to him. And it's also the agent where he draws near to us. That's why the scriptures are absolutely vital. to the sustaining of our, of our faith, our hope, our love. That's why the scripture sanctifies. That's why the scripture enlightens. That's why the scripture strengthens. Apart from the scriptures, the things of God are as some of the people of the world think, just a bunch of fairy tales. But God does draw near in and through the word by his presence in us and by drawing us out to transcendent realities that are sweet, that are joyful, that are pleasant, that are delightful, that are more to be desired than any earthly reality we can ever experience. And you know what? Our problem isn't so much that we don't know that, but it's we don't continue to know that. Is that we experience the good of it sporadically, right? Now, I'm not saying every single time you open up your Bible, you're going to do a gospel jig around the Christmas tree. I'm not going to say that that's what you should be expecting. But I am saying that when you do open your Bible, you should expect a meeting with God. You should expect an encounter with God in some way or some fashion. And to pray for that. Lord, as I open up your word and as I meditate on your word, draw near to teach me. Draw near to open my mind to see wonderful things out of your law. Help me to taste the sweetness of what your word holds forth to me. Help me to delight in it. Help me to approach the scriptures today as a scrumptious meal. And to recognize that there's just nothing in the world that can compare to it. There's nothing in the world more precious than the reality of a God who speaks and a God who makes himself known and a God who draws us near to him and who himself draws near to us through the mediation of this book. But there's one more way to ascertain the value of the word. And that's to understand its usefulness. 
Not only is it precious and sweet, but it's useful. Its uses are unparalleled. It comes to us with its warnings and its rewards. He says, first of all, by them is your servant warned. Now, for those of us who grew up in the 60s and became fans of a television show called Lost in Space, I was never very delighted when the robot would start to say, Danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson. It was really, in my mind, it was not something very pleasant. It was something that was... uh, I thought it was silly, I guess I would say. But it's nice to have someone that will warn you when a danger is coming. Warning ahead of time. Life is filled with dangers. The Christian life is multiplied with numerous spiritual dangers. The world knows nothing of. Scripture is God's warning signs. Providing ample warning. Telling us when danger is afoot. Calling us back when we're wandering off of the path. Calling us to return to God. Reproving our faults. Exposing the lies and deceptions we are prone to believe. I mean, without God's word and God's people bringing God's word to us, We easily get off the path. I just had an experience of that not just not too long ago. When I was filled with a sense of my own rightness about certain matters and certain ways I was speaking and certain things I was saying, that um, I felt I had the right to say those things. I felt I had the right to be thinking those things. I felt I stood on firm biblical grounds in doing it. And a brother just come to me and say, you need to rethink this. You need to rethink this. And he brought about some scripture passages that just pierced my heart. Just pierced my heart. And I confessed to him my fault. And uh, another person that I made such an evil display before. And I wrote him a note and asked his forgiveness. But it's the word that brings us back to our senses. When we've just strayed off the path. And we think we're, we're right. We think we're just. We think we're smarter than everybody else. We just have it all together and nobody else does. And we're made accountable to the people of God who bring to us the word of God. We become thankful that we have people that love us enough to tell us the truth. People who care about us enough to warn us that we've gone off the reservation in a certain spiritual madness. I think some of the people that just go about the world today spouting forth their notions of religious mania. I was reading an article today about these Christian people that are going to go around the country holding these meetings, the leaders of which actually call themselves Christian fascists. Crystal fascists is what they call themselves. These people are off the reservation of anything that could properly be called Christianity. And the problem is, no one in their churches is saying, stop. No one in the churches are saying, 
Leaders, he just gotten power drunk. No one's telling him no. Thankful for a congregation that holds me accountable to the book. We need to be warned because we so easily believe our own delusions and our own lies. Not a particular like that there's a lot of signs on the road that are telling you deer crossing. Go up to Maine, it's moose crossing up there. I guess if you encounter a moose, you're glad that somebody put up a sign. Falling rocks. Slippery ice when you go over the bridge. But those are placed there because they save lives. We need to be warned where dangers are real. And God's word comes and speaks to the issue of the real dangers that we need to be avoiding. Just read the book of Proverbs. The father counsels his son in the pathway of wisdom, saying, don't go there. If sinners entice you, don't go there. Don't do these things. Don't be, don't be naive. Learn maturity of judgment and understanding and discernment and discretion. The word of God warns us, but then it also rewards us. It's not just the stick. It's the carrot. It's the rewards for those who overcome. Think about Jesus in the letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor, in Revelation 2 and 3. In every one of those churches, almost, I think there's one where there's no criticism, but in every other one, there's something to be criticized, something where he has to say, I have this against you. And he calls them to repentance for those things that he has against them. Then he has things that he praises. But then he says, to he that overcomes. The he that overcomes. He who by faith overcomes will be given to eat of the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. He that overcomes will sit with me upon my throne with my Father. He that overcomes, these blessings will be given to them. Not earthly or worldly riches. What scripture defines for us as an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. But there's other rewards that the word of God and its obedience confers. There's the reward of a good conscience. Nice to have a good conscience rather than a bloody conscience. To have a good name. That's, that's to be preferred. Above all other things that scripture tells us about. The good satisfaction in having pleased God having blessed others, having served the interests of God's kingdom and his righteousness in the world. There are many valuable rewards God confers upon his people. He says a cup of cold water given in the name of his disciple will not lose its reward. God's careful to reward his people for their service. Again, it's all matters that he inspires within us, but yet he blesses what he himself gives. And we should bless God for that. We need God's word to direct us in a clear path, holding forth the promises, holding forth the hope, holding forth the sheer pleasure of living so as to please God. And keeping them. There's great reward. And 
you notice the emphasis is not just knowing about them. It's just not knowing about the promises. It's keeping the word of God. It's not those that know about it. It's those that are doing it. It's not just those that approve of it. It's those who are doing it. Be not hearers of the word only, deceiving your own selves. Be ye doers of the word. God's word is valuable, folks, for what it is and what it does. That it's more to be desired than gold, precious, sweeter than the honey and the best kind of honey you ever can imagine eating. It's useful in its capacity to warn of the dangers and to reward it's obedience. I just want to sing together Holy Bible, Book Divine, Precious Treasure, Thou art mine. Mine to teach me where I came, mine to show a Savior's love, mine to all the other things it does, to punish and reward are some of the words I recall. But that's what God's Word does. It does it performs for us incredible good. And the greatest good of all is it mediates the divine presence. So, as I will conclude this morning, I would just say to you, if you've come in here this morning, kind of thinking, well, the Bible's a the good book. That's what it's called. The Bible is something people ought to read, but mm, I don't really get much time to do much reading. I'm not really a reader at all. You know, you might not be a panner for gold, but if you know there are golds, gold in the hills... You get a pickaxe, you get a painting thing, you, you, you get all the materials. You, you go to Dick's Sporting Goods, you get whatever you need to get out into those hills to do what? Get the gold! There's gold in them dear hills. There's gold in the book of God. Determined to mine it. To use it for all of its worth. All of the good that God designs to do through his word. You don't have to read anything else. I'd love you to read a lot of Christian books I think are great. But if you don't read those, that's, that's, you, you'll get by. If you read this book, if you make it your joy, you make it your, your regular discipline, you'll experience the sweetness. You'll experience the value. You shall experience the God of the Word. He'll come and join, join here. He will come and he will transport you into the joys of his transcendent glory and presence. And he will come and he will search and try and see if there's any evil way in you. And he will lead you in the way everlasting. May God be pleased to continue to mediate his own presence in us by his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful we can consider these things and Lord, we can talk about these things all day long, but how much more important it is to experience them, how much more important it is to know the good of the word just by our daily trafficking in the wonderful things of Holy Scripture. Lord, we pray that you would make us to be students of the book, to meditate in your Torah day and night, to be open-hearted to receive instruction 
to be open to receive the reality of a God who draws near and a God who brings us into the joys of your fellowship and communion through your holy and wonderful word. So be pleased and give us, we pray, a just understanding of the value of your word that, Lord, we would profit by it in all of the ways you designed to use it. So look upon us with your grace and with your favor. Bless your people, we pray, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.